This week, I picked up Dr. Sandra Richter's book, The Epic of Eden. I've had it on my bookshelf for a while, but I haven't really had time to read it. Dr. Richter is a professor at Westmont, and it has beckoned me uh, for a while now because of our study in Hebrews. Her book is an excellent resource for the church, and I have it in the back for you to look at if you want, because it gives strong understanding of the settings in which the Bible was written. While explaining ancient cultures, Dr. Richter makes connections to different passages of scripture that broaden and deepen our understanding. There's so much we don't know, and we need people in scholarship and academia to uh, help us understand some of these things in the Bible. And because we're talking about covenant right now, I want to give you a little bit of explanation from her book that will enlighten our path as we study today in Hebrews. Because the idea of covenant is such an integral part of our scripture like breathing is to our bodies. It's important that we try to grasp what it is and be reminded what it is because covenant theology is intimately connected to the story of God and our story with him. So it's worth a few minutes for us to understand the culture in which it was given. First off, the Greek word for covenant is diatheke which means an agreement or contract between two parties, but not two equal parties. Rather, it's a situation where one entity is making the decision. The Scottish commenta uh, commentator uh, William Barclay likens it to a person who's making a will that will be executed after their demise. The conditions of the will are legal and binding because they are made by one person, and they can't really be disputed. The heirs can accept or reject what is given to them. This is the idea of diatheke, an agreement where one person has the main responsibility. Here, of course, it's God. In fact, diatheke is the word that has been rendered from the Hebrew as testaments to label the Bible, but actually, we would best understand the Bible as the Old and the New Covenants. There are many examples of covenant in the Bible, both between humans and God and humans with one another. We would remember five significant covenants God initiates early in the biblical narrative with Adam and Eve and Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. And all of these have significant impact on God's people as the backbone of the covenant that Jesus also later comes to bring. But it is in the agreement between humans that Dr. Richter says gives us a helpful frame of reference for what covenant is. In the culture of ancient Israel, a person's opportunity and privilege, of course, were determined by their family their tribe, their birth order, and their gender. And of course, the patriarch had the highest level of responsibility. And since everyone was connected, the more closely related people were, the greater responsibility they had for one another. But there were also bonds which were established where people who were not family agree to act as if they were. It's called fictional kinship, where people adopted one another on some level, and covenants were made to provide and protect for one another on an individual, tribal, and national level. 
Now, because of Israel's unique geographic position, the two superpowers of the time, Egypt and Mesopotamia, often fought and vied to control it. And because there were other smaller nations like Israel that needed to protect itself from the various threats and tactics of the superpowers, as well as from one another, there were treaties and alliances that were regularly made for survival. So if the enemy of my neighbor I have sworn to help attacks them, I have to go to their aid and vice versa because we have promised to act as family no matter what. A perhaps more beneficial agreement was called the Suzerain and Vassal Treaty. This is where one party is clearly more powerful than the other and had the right to demand submission to the part of their weaker ally. And because of this, the partner would be referred to as father and son or lord and servant. The Suzerain had authority over the land and over the people of the vassal nation. They legally owned it, even though the vassal continued to rule their own people. This was an exchange for military protection. So no matter what kind of threat the vassal incurred, the suzerain was expected to come and defend. And the vassal was expected to come and bring military assistance when requested. And it was common for the suzerain to initiate this relationship with a gift of land and complete loyalty was expected. And a vassal was not allowed to make an agreement with anyone else. A king, of course, could have multiple covenants, but the vassal could only have one suzerain. So the vassal owed everything to the overseer without whom there would be no survival. So there's an instance in the Bible where this type of agreement is seen with Joshua and the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites see that Israel has come into their area. They see that Israel is going to take things over. And so they trick Joshua into accepting them as, uh, as his vassal. So the kings of Canaan find out and they're not very happy because the Gibeonites are actually their vassal. But it doesn't matter that Joshua has been duped because he's agreed that the Gibeonites belong to him. So now he, Joshua has to get his allies and he has to go and fight the Gibeonites and the Lord gives them the victory in that situation. So when God makes a covenant with his people, he is using a formula they are already familiar with. When Yahweh uses covenant language, it's because he knows the Israelites understand what it means. That they are agreeing to be his people and he their God. Let's think about what we talked about last week with Pharaoh. When Moses goes to demand that Egypt, one of the superpowers on earth, let the people go. The scripture said it was because Yahweh had heard their groaning and he remembered the covenant that he had with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in all of the plagues, Yahweh is showing that he is going to fight for the people, that they belong to him. And no matter what Pharaoh says, he has taken them. On Mount Sinai, the covenant is renewed and codified. And God uses the same format 
that other ancient secular treaties had been brokered upon. This is more understood way later on, actually, in the 1950s with a scholar named George Mendenhall. But the point is that in this agreement, Yahweh is using a well-known practice to teach the children of Israel who he is and who they are in relationship to one another and what the story of God is going to be for the rest of time. What is God say in Exodus 19, he says this, now then, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among the people. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And listen to this quote from the Epic of Eden. Although Israel would be allowed the privilege of ruling themselves, they would be expected to pay tribute such as tithe and sacrifice, give unquestioned loyalty to her suzerain, fight his wars, obey his law, teach his stipulations in the next generation, and maintain a king who is faithful to him. Yahweh has become Israel's sovereign Lord and Israel his servant. Now, I know this has been involved, <laughs> but I'm grateful uh, to Dr. Richter for her frame and scholarship on this topic. It's vital that we understand in our day and age the richness of the word covenant, that we not just hear the word covenant with our modern American mindset. Ancient Israel was a unique place. And as we study this passage today, really, it's an entire quote from the book of Jeremiah. So we have to understand what is going on because the original readers of this would have gotten right away the argument that the writer of Hebrews was giving. So with all of this in mind, I will read from Hebrews 8, 7 through 13. It is in your bulletin if you'd like to read along. For if that covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need to look for a second one. God finds fault with them when he says, The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors, on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I had no concern for them, says the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest. And I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and growing old soon will disappear. The word of the Lord. Now this section is the longest quote from the Old Testament passage in the New Testament. And we see that the author of Hebrews wants to continue showing that God always intended to provide an updated covenant for his people. He is still in charge, and we are still free people who respond to him for life. Just a quick reminder about Jeremiah. 
Remember that after King Solomon, that the kingdom of Israel divided into two, Israel and Judah. And when Jeremiah wrote this book, sometime before 586 BCE, Israel had already been destroyed by Assyria. The overarching theme of Jeremiah's prophecy is judgment. And in his tenure, the southern kingdom of Judah falls. So this quote from Hebrews shows how God one day would change the stipulation of his agreement with his vassal Israel. And the people of Jeremiah's time hoped that they would see that day, that it would bring restoration and unity to their nation. Although centuries before Christ, Jeremiah's words matches with what Messiah came to bring. And the writer of Hebrews is using this quote to prove it. So as I've read the passage and tried to discern how to best lead us into these old and new covenants, what kept coming back to me is just how much God wants to be known by his people. God wants to be known. That's the point of the promises that God makes, the life that he expects in return. The rich metaphor of the suzerain vassal breaks down when we consider that God has no equal. There is no one else in the realm that is equal to God that we can turn to. But we do. We turn to other false gods and we break the promise that we have made between us. But God's motivation isn't more land or power Everything already belongs to him. The point of any covenant God makes, and especially the new one, is so that people would know him, and that matters. So as we go through, there are five statements in Hebrew briefly I want to talk about that God says he will do in his desire for us to know him. First, he says, I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. There are two reasons here we can see that God does this. One is because the first one was meant not to be permanent. In verse 7, it says, if the old had been faultless, there would be no need for a new one. And then the author quotes Jeremiah, who promises that one day there will be a different way, a better way. The system that God set up was for a time. It was exactly what it was meant to be. Centuries before Christ, God planned to change the terms. The other reason is because the people didn't continue to be faithful to what they promised. In Jeremiah's time, they were reaping the consequences of breaking their word to Yahweh. And God could have chosen just to walk away. But instead, he comes in person, bringing a better covenant so it's easier to know him. Secondly, God says, I will put my laws in their minds and write these laws on their hearts. A huge part of the agreement that Israel made with Yahweh as their suzerain was that they would keep the law. God is holy. He expects his people to walk with him, that they also would be holy. But the external way of following the rules is painfully hard. And the first covenant was written on stone tablets and communicated by a third party, Moses. But the second covenant, God says, is written inside of us. And notice that the call to holiness remains. Jesus says the entire law and all of the teachings of the prophets are based on two commands. What are they? Loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our 
neighbor as we love ourselves. Love is how God transforms us from the inside out. Knowing God means choosing to love as he does. Third, God says, I will be their God and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach one another and say, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest. This is the same language used in Exodus, which shows us the thread connecting God's story from beginning to end. We have the same Lord who always has reached out for people to uniquely know him. Now it's based solidly on a loving relationship. Everyone can need God. We don't can know God. We don't need intermediaries. Of course, we still need teachers. The writer of Hebrews is teaching them now. But all who belong to Christ have Christ inside of them, teaching them and guiding them and convicting them. We don't know God mainly from what we learn about him from others, but from the experiences we have with him ourselves. And another change is how everyone now gets to know him, not a specialized group of people, but everyone. The doors are thrown open wide from the least to the greatest, allowing all of us to be adopted into his family. This is covenant language, knowing that God has chosen us and we have chosen him. For he says he will be merciful to their iniquities. God wanted to renew the covenant because it was impossible for humans to keep the law. They might have known the law, but did they know God as being merciful and loving? Often we think about those under the first covenant as being rebellious for not keeping it better. We read the scripture that says they were a stiff-necked people who wanted to go their own way. And we go, yeah, yeah. That is undoubtedly true in some cases, and we also are stiff-necked people. But we should also think about those people who just got worn down, who just couldn't do it anymore. The ones who wanted to trust God, who wanted to follow the law, but the death of a child, or living in a demanding, ugly culture, or the agony of life just got to them. We see that today. The new covenant makes it possible to know God's mercy firsthand as he walks with us through life, as he weeps with us, as he shows us his mercy. He cares for us in our brokenness in a way that the law just couldn't do. Lastly, he says, I will remember their sins no more. This is an important piece of hope, especially in Jeremiah's time as the overthrow of Judah was in full swing. People wanted assurance that they would be restored to God's kingdom. They wanted a God who would welcome them back even when it wasn't deserved. Jesus gives us this grace. God wanted his people to know his grace, but it didn't quite work out that way for them. In the former covenant they had, this wasn't quite clear. But every time we repent, Jesus' mercy covers our sin. Last week we talked about the blood of the new covenant. The blood brings us forgiveness. Curiously, the writer ends this with just one sentence about the old covenant being obsolete. The entire quote from Jeremiah is directly the Lord's word. So maybe there just wasn't very much for them to add. And I think that we are meant to take from this what the early church struggled with, that the two covenants are not meant to coexist equally on the same level. 
Jesus taught that the second one fulfills the promise of the first, that his arrival completes the covenant, allowing us to know the sovereign Lord in a way that Jeremiah's audience would have found compelling and freeing and life-giving. And in all of the talk about better and superior and greater covenant, we have to remember that those of us who are grafted in later come to this family, this kin, with gratefulness and humility. That we don't put down the old covenant, which was grace-filled and revolutionary for what it provided. And God, in his ultimate wisdom, chose the ways for people to know him and the timing of what it means to do so. One commentary I read said that the era in which the first covenant was given was a light shining brightly for God's people, giving insight to know God in his holiness and love. But now the light of the world has come, illuminating a new way to know him. So this brings us back to the whole point of the covenant that God made. Why does God create humankind? so that we can know him? Why does he deliver the Israelites and give them commands to live by so that he can be known? Why does he keep forgiving their iniquities, leading them forward, providing, staying close to them even when they leave him? Why does he give them kings and prophets? Why does Jesus come? Why does he die and is raised to new life? Why are the doors of the church blown off when the Holy Spirit arrives? Why are we told to pray? Why are we equipped and gifted to serve? Why are we empowered and filled? Why is Jesus preparing a place for us in heaven and coming back again soon? Everything that God has done in the promises and covenants and agreements he has made is because he wants you to know him. That is the story of God. Do you see God's heart in all that he has done in his tireless working and coming after a broken humanity? We make Christianity about so many things. But the point is that God wants us to live daily with him in a loving, covenant, faithful relationship. That's it. He is our Lord and we are his people. And so let us exercise our covenant relationship right now and take a moment in prayer as the worship team comes. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.